Welcome to a recording from a La Trobe Asia public event. Tens of thousands of ethnic Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities have been detained in re-education camps in the Chinese province of Xinjiang. The Chinese government claims these camps are benign vocational training centres, but many outside observers assert that they are little more than prisons, where detainees are subjected to political and cultural indoctrination without legal recourse. In this public event on Uyghurs in China, you'll be hearing from Nuri Turkel and Louisa Grieve from the Uyghur Human Rights Project. You'll also be hearing from Associate Professor James Leibold from Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. And the event was chaired by Ewan Graham, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. This event was co-hosted with the Australian Institute of International Affairs in Victoria and was recorded on the 7th of December, 2018. Good afternoon, everyone. It's rather loud. Um, thank you very much to the, um, the, the AIA for their all in, um, in, in co-organising this event. Um, I'm very thankful that uh, we've managed to squeeze this in as our final event of the year. And I think it's been shown, reflected in the uh, obvious interest um, with the numbers attending here today, which is really truly an, an impressive um, turnout. So thank you to all of you um, for, for your interest. Uh, we have a th uh, an excellent panel with us um, who have been uh, completing, uh, this is the final um, stop on their, their whistle tour of, um, of Australia, um, having already been through Canberra, uh, Sydney, uh, and now Melbourne. <coughs> so we have a, just a simple question uh, to start us off, what is happening to the, the Uyghur in, in Xinjiang? Of course, a simple question, uh, but uh, no, no simple um, answers. Uh, we're joined by um, three panellists. Um, Mr. Uh, Nuri Turkle uh, is the first and only practising uh, lawyer of Uyghur heritage in the United States. He's made a critical contribution to raising the profile of the Uyghur issue since he arrived in Washington back in 2001. He helped found the, the Uyghur Human Rights Project and successfully persuaded the National Endowment for Democracy to help fund it. He also served as president of the, of the Uyghur American Association. He's spoken and published widely on the situation of the Uyghurs, uh, including much um, media commentary, uh, and has testified before Congress on multiple occasions. Uh, to my left, uh, Louisa Grieve is consultant and the director for external affairs, also with the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Louisa has been involved in Uyghur human rights work for over 15 years. Um, she, she was um, Asia Director previously at the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, where she oversaw numerous China pro-democracy initiatives. She was responsible for the historic breakthrough in international support for Uyghur human, uh, human rights advocacy by arranging the first financial support received by a Uyghur organisation from any institutional donor. She currently serves uh, as the Director of External Affairs and she's the author of several book chapters on ethnic issues and human rights uh, in China and has also testified before Congress on multiple occasions. So welcome to you, uh, Nuri and Louisa. Uh, and to my right, my distinguished uh, colleague from La Trobe University, uh, Associate Professor James Leibold uh, in um, politics at uh, La Trobe. Um, James is an expert on politics of ethnicity, race and national identity in modern China. He's currently engaged in research on ethnic policy making and ethnic conflict in contemporary China with a particular focus on Tibetan and Uyghur ethnic minorities. He's the author and co-editor of four books and over 25 peer-reviewed uh, articles and book chapters. 
and it'd be remiss if I didn't include uh, his recent appearance in um, the New York Times, which uh, I know from experience is very difficult to get into. So congratulations with that, James. Uh, we're all really green with envy, but well, well done. Um, he's a frequent contributor to the international media on, on all of these topics, and Dr. Leibold is currently the lead chief investigator on an Australia Research Council-funded project entitled Urbanising Western China, Nation-Building and Social Mobilisation on the Sino-Tibetan Frontier. Um, I'm Ewan Graham, so I've just taken over recently as the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, um, and I'd just like to uh, flag the fact that we have our new publication, Asia Rising, which comes out twice per year. Um, so that's available on the La Trobe Asia uh, website. So um, please do um, have a look at that. I don't want to take any further time away. I'm sure you all are burning with curiosity, and I want to give you time in the audience to develop your own questions as well. But I thought we'd start with a, a, a bit of a panel discussion uh, around the issue of uh, the Uyghurs, starting, I think, with the obvious question in mind. What, what's the latest? What is happening? Um, with, given the challenges of getting information uh, out of, uh, of Xinjiang, um, what, Nuri, do we uh, know about the scale and scope uh, of the detentions? Can you update us? Thank you very much. So um, we've been um, traveling in Canberra, uh, Sydney, and this is our last leg of the uh, uh, Australian advocacy trip. So uh, whenever when I'm asked to talk about uh, the ongoing uh, crisis, the one question comes to mind is how much do you have, how much time do you have, and where do I begin? So about 20 months ago, uh, the Chinese government started rounding up Uyghurs based on artificial intelligence uh, uh, created data. Uh, that includes where you've been or travel history, uh, family connection, past writings, uh, past humanitarian work, uh, even performing, uh, even uh, going to Europe to get soccer training. So when you look at uh, the population pool, you'd be surprised what kind of people that the Chinese government started to round up. So when we started the initial campaign uh, advocating and advocating the cause, uh, people were in disbelief, uh, did not believe that, uh, they found it incredible that in 2018, we're talking about last 10 months, uh, that, the, that a government uh, criminalized the entire nation based on their ethnicity and religious background. So until the August, uh, uh, there was some reports, media reports, mainly by the Wall Street Journal and the Radio Free Asia, uh, reporting on the, uh, on the repressive uh, situation. But the whole landscape changed in August when a uh, third panel at the UN uh, led by uh, Gay McDougall, challenged the Chinese government, uh, stating that uh, about 3.3 million being pe people being affected. Of those 3.3 million, uh, about up to a million being de detained in the uh, uh, the the Chinese government uh, uh, in the camp that the Chinese government calls reeducation centers. Uh, since then, uh, in the last three four months. Uh, what we tried to tell the world initially have been verified through government uh, uh, statistics, uh, bidding, uh, construction materials, personal accounts, 
uh, investigative reporting, uh, evidence-based research. So what do we know today? We know that um, over a million people have been sent to the re-education camps that the Chinese euphemistically calls, um, which is a modern-day concentration camps. And then there are uh, millions of uh, other individuals uh, either been uh, sent to prison long-term or attend, forced to attend daily re-education. The estimated number is about over 10 million. There's a uh, human rights organization, uh, Chinese Human Rights Defenders, put out a report uh, on the subject line. It says 3.3 million people have been affected by this. So... Uh, <coughs> uh, Despite the mounting pressure in various capitals and despite uh, the media scrutiny, Chinese government doesn't uh, appear to be uh, backing down or loosening up. Actually, they're doing the opposite. Based on a recent two reports, uh, one is uh, published by Australian Strategic uh, Policy Institute, which says that uh, of the camps that they've been surveyed, uh, 28 camps, the uh, expansion rate is 465% in just less than two years. The Reuters uh, identified over 80 camps uh, in the uh, investigative reporting that they've done last week. Uh, of those 80 camps, 36 being surveyed, the expansion area is equal to 140 uh, soccer fields. Um, and also BBC reported that uh, China is attempting to build the largest prison camp in the world today uh, in a, uh, an area just outside of Urumqi. So um, that is what is happening. And also I'd like to quickly mention uh, the, the effect that this madness have, have, have had on us, like the individuals like myself, uh, who had a kind of semi-normal life in the past, when we deal with Chinese government's harassment and uh, um, internationally and engaging in social engineering domestically, we thought that eventually the Chinese will either realize that there's something wrong or back down and, and, and fix some of the problems. And now since we're dealing with human engineering uh, situation, our family members been uh, suffering. Uh, if you talk to any Uyghurs, uh, this is not, I'm not making this up, this is serious, especially in this country, your fellow citizens have been losing out on emotional, uh, personal level. The anxiety, the crippling anxiety, the sense of guilt, sense of helplessness, creating uh, enormous uh, problem for the Uyghur diaspora. So the Chinese government domestically uh, using it is uh, it's state-run uh, media uh, and these camps to uh, uh, wage in psychological warfare. At the same time, they are pressuring uh, Uyghur citizens of countries like Australia and the United States and others uh, to not to speak up, even, uh, even though their family members are being locked up. So I leave it at that, um, and I'd be happy to address more specifically, but... Uh, in closing, I say the Uyghurs are canaries in a cold mine. Uh, Uyghur people desperately need your help, desperately uh, encourage, uh, desperately need a governmental bold actions from the liberal democracies around the world. Thanks. Uh, very
that very, I think, clearly um, brings into sharp focus um, some of the, the missing um, details, but highlighting the, not just the scale in physical terms, but also in, in uh, psychological and emotional terms for the uh, community, both those directly affected, but also the, the um, diaspora community um, elsewhere, including here in, in Australia. So, obviously, um, the motivation is, is in a very uh, basic sense clear. Um, a concentration camp, as you call it, is designed to do something um, very evident to the population. But I want to turn now to um, James to get your sense and um, to drill down a little bit further into what is the um, motivation or motivations of the Chinese Communist Party uh, in pursuing these uh, these policies, what's a, what really is um, the party trying to achieve, James? Can you break that down for us? Thanks, Ewan. I mean, first of all, I want to thank um, Latrobe Asia and AIIA for hosting us today, and it's a pleasure to share the panel with the uh, three distinguished individuals to my left. Um, in terms of, if you talk to party officials, and I can't say I do, I don't really have direct access, but if you read what they say in, in the media, uh, they would uh, argue that uh, China uh, is uh, impacted by what they call the three evil forces, <coughs> splitism, extremism, and terrorism. Now, this concern with splitism goes a long way back, uh, China's attempts to uh, uh, to assert its sovereignty over its ethnic periphery. Uh, you know, in the, the, the former dynasty, the Qing dynasty, the Chinese sent a large army to put down a Muslim rebellion and to assert its sovereignty and then created this uh, a new area, new territory, Xinjiang, uh, and began to transfer uh, uh, the Han ethnic majority <coughs> population into the region to uh, assert its sovereignty over this area. Now, the concerns with extremism and terrorism are far more recent and really come to the fore after 9-11, when China starts to say, we too have a problem with, uh, with terrorism, um, and begins to uh, exert uh, more hardline policies uh, that, uh, that begin to infiltrate down into Uyghur society. And this concern, uh, or perceived concern with uh, extremism and terrorism, becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts. And uh, Uyghurs do, uh, small numbers, do radicalize. Um, some uh, try to escape uh, Xinjiang and, and do so successfully. And there are uh, some Uyghurs uh, in Syria uh, today fighting alongside <coughs> ISIS. Um, and there were some that uh, uh, struck out uh, internally, both in Xinjiang and uh, elsewhere in China. And some of you will recall uh, the attack that occurred in Tiananmen uh, when an individual drove a car laden with petrol, or the even more horrific attack at a Kunming train station. And so this uh, self-fulfilling uh, prophecy uh, then leads to an even further uh, cycle of violence as the Chinese Communist Party ramps up its approach of what it calls de-radicalization. But if you look at their approach to de-radicalization, originally there's an interesting transition that occurs. Originally, uh, so in 2014, uh, Xi Jinping declares a national anti-terror campaign. 
and, and or, uh, uh, authorizes uh, the party secretary at the time, Jiang Chunshen, to begin de-radicalization work. Initially, it was done in a very targeted way. They would identify individuals um, using uh, a number of proxies, such as do you have a long beard, do you wear a veil, do you uh, give your children Islamic names, uh, and, and then subject them to one-on-one -on -one intensive uh, what they call transform uh, transformation through education proceedings. But if you look at the number of people who were targeted back then, this is in 2014, it was a very small percentage of people, less than 1% of the Uyghur population in any location. So something changed beginning in 2016. Uh, and part of it was a, a change in leadership in the region, where Jiang Chunshen was pushed aside, and uh, uh, Xi brought in Chen uh, Chengguo uh, from Tibet. <coughs> and he essentially gave him uh, what I believe was a, a blank check to pursue uh, even more extreme policy there. Uh, and we began to see the building and construction of these mass uh, uh, detention camps that uh, Niri uh, talked about. And you begin to see that local officials have quotas just to round up anybody uh, to fill up uh, the, uh, the, the, the necessary Uyghurs to be detained. And so we see uh, estimates, of, of course, no, we, we don't have very firm figures on how many people have been detained, but scholars and journalists estimate that we're looking at at least 10% of the Uyghur population. So over a million people have been detained. And Niri talked about, and you can go online and look at the satellite imagery of these camps. They're massive. You know, some of them with the capacity to hold over 100,000 people. I mean, these are the largest concentration camps in the world today. Um, and what happens inside those? Well, it's gone well beyond de-radicalization. It's essentially cultural and political re-engineering. It's, it's about um, uh, stripping away and domesticating uh, the Uyghur population by uh, eroding their language, forcing them to learn Mandarin Chinese, to abandon their religion, uh, to adopt Han-defined uh, norms. So essentially to, to re-engineer them into normal Chinese citizens. Um, uh, and that process is very much uh, ongoing uh, today. And so essentially it start, you start with a... Uh, with a concern that uh, I think is disproportional, uh, uh, with a, then a disproportional response, uh, unfortunately. I want to come back to that um, later on, but in terms of these initial framing questions, I think the other area to hit is the international response. So maybe, Louisa, I can turn to you um, with that in mind um, and ask you, um, not just with your uh, experience in, in DC, but having recently completed a whistle-stop tour of Australia as a comparison point. How do you gauge the international response um, to these uh, uh, um, situation? And uh, has the, the international media in particular been sufficiently engaged? And, and if not, why not? Thank you, uh, Ewan. This is a, a terrific question. In fact, I would uh, give tremendous credit to the international media for having been seized with this issue. Uh, journalists based in China who regularly try to travel uh, or who knew uh, Uyghur people who had tra done travel uh, reporting trips there first began to notice something very, very wrong. And we're hearing from the only practicing Uyghur journalists who work for Radio Free Asia, which has an office in Washington. Unlike uh, other international radio, they're not allowed to, they cannot travel uh, to the place where they're reporting. They do everything by telephone, interviewing uh, witnesses, 
and have been issuing a steady drumbeat of bad news on human rights um, for years, but began to notice uh, terrible things happening, uh, shocking things, uh, 20 months ago, as Nuri said. But I want to point particularly to the international journalists, particularly working in, in English, a little bit of French. Once they report they may leave the China beat, they stay with this issue. If you particularly look at social media, I ur urge everyone to uh, start following the people who are uh, covering this issue and you'll see it's a it's moved beyond a, an objective um, uh, wanting to tell a story and it's or, t or report on uh, a, a piece of story what happened when I happened to be there but say this is an unfolding catastrophe of, of historic significance and they're on the story the moment they touch it. So great credit to international media, uh, Nuri mentioned some of them, and this has gone, uh, caught the attention of policymakers. So I can say that uh, in the US uh, under tremendous leadership of Senator Marco Rubio, also leaders within the US State Department, uh, Mike Pompeo, our Secretary of State, has uh, talked about the severity of the problem there in at least uh, two major speeches as our, as our Director of National Intelligence, as a, a matter of uh, global norms, and our Vice President. We've seen leaders in uh, Germany uh, and Australia um, raising as a diplomatic matter in bilateral relations with China um, the need to talk about this. This is not uh, something uh, that can be ignored in bilateral relations and then multilaterally, which is certainly important for Australian policy making. You know, what is the multilateral response? You saw an extraordinary diplomatic rebuke of China for the very first time uh, in November at China's Universal Periodic Review in November. Following the August UN panel that Mary mentioned, uh, 14 countries specifically said to the government of China, close these camps. It's unacceptable. Um, we, of course, think this is not nearly enough of a response, and I'd love to be able to uh, get to that, the rest of the policy agenda further along in the panel. Thank you. That's, um, in a way, a, a good segue um, back to the, the local impact here in Australia. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that, Nuri, because it links to the media question. It has been covered. Um, there has been a, a few articles. There was one in um, Fairfax um, not so long ago which talked about the impact on um, the Australian Uyghur community. But in terms of your own in interaction since you arrived, having taken the temperature in, in the three cities that you visited so far, um, what's your, what have you heard, um, Nuri, from Uyghur community members here? Uh, and is there any difference in terms of the reaction here compared to where the, other, where the diaspora is, is elsewhere in the United States? The Australian Uyghur communities appear to be uh, the, uh, appear to be on top of the list of all of the communities being affected. Uh, everyone I talk to uh, tells me heart-wrenching stories. Uh, the Chinese government has, uh, has been publicly saying that they wanted to break uh, Uyghur lineage, roots, <laughs> connections, and the origin. This is their slogan. Has been implemented in both domestic and uh, international fronts. Uh, that is my sense. That the, I, I, I've seen more people, uh, in addition to the ones that I had interacted in the United States too, uh, they feel lost, very hopeless. Um, <clears throat> it, it's relatively manageable matter when you dealt with Australian citizens, but I've noticed that uh, I've learned that they're more uh, the problem lies on the residents uh, who either return to China 
the last travel document and could never return. Uh, and then three, uh, Australian government uh, seemed to be in the process of doing something to protect their own citizens. But uh, based on my conversation and based on what I heard from the community members, uh, it's not enough. So uh, at least our governments, including my own, have to do something bold uh, to prevent or protect their national security or sovereignty uh, on the face of China's uh, coercive campaign. So specifically some communities, some governments need to look at ways to help to improve mental health of the Uyghurs, Uyghurs all around the world. I've been, uh, um, I've been uh, in discussion, conversation with uh, several uh, successful Uyghurs in the United States. One of, them's, uh, one of them told me that he had to take leave of absence from his work because he could not handle uh, the psychological pressure. He recently returned to the homeland. His family members not allowed to see him and he was not allowed to uh, go to the uh, cemetery to pay respect to his one of his parents because he was too religious to go to the cemetery. To um, So uh, it may, when you hear it, it sounds very um, uh, maybe incredible. Just imagine one thing. Um, Imagine that you have aging parents, relatives, that you cannot just grab the phone and give them a comfort when they're going through a health situation. Imagine that you have your loved ones passing, uh, parents, mother, that you cannot be at the funeral. Imagine that you cannot call your parents or family members to say you miss them and you love them. It's very simple, very simple. So this, is, this has been the life for us, uh, particularly since early 2017. There are a lot of Uyghurs don't even know if their parents are still breathing. We've been faced a communication blockout. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Louise, I'd like to turn back to you for the next question. Um, with your experience in having dealt with um, human rights, in China over um, a long period. You'll no doubt be familiar with, it used to be a common line of argument that, that China cared about its reputation uh, and the reputational costs that could be used to, to mold its behavior. Is that assumption sustainable any longer, given the defense of mass detention that we've seen um, in increasingly bold terms from China's um, state media? There was a reference earlier, I think James um, talked about the the line of, of um, in, in the Global Times, I think it was, where, um, which is now asserting that China's policy is trying to turn um, terrorists into normal people. Um, given that kind of line, um, is there a reputational? Um, is that is that viable any longer? I'd like to divide that question into two parts. Um, one is is about um, whether the government of China feels any constraints on its behavior. And to take a, even the example that Nuri's been discussing, um, we have a number of Uyghurs here. Just to put it out there, uh, all of them have lost touch with one or more family members. Uh, if you go to somebody say that you haven't seen in a long time, you say, how's your family? Their tears will start. They don't know where they are. 
So it's a mass roundup of anyone who has foreign connections whatsoever, who has education, and so on. But more so in terms of violation of sovereignty, these people are getting texts and phone calls from police in China. And what are they saying? We need you to provide information about what is going on in the Uyghur community, if there's anybody speaking up against the motherland, meaning the government of China, the Communist Party of China, uh, asking them to send information, or we can't guarantee that your family will be safe. Think about your family back in China, you, uh, Melbourne, Can Canberra, Sydney, uh, Adelaide, Uyghurs. Think about your family and then be quiet and give us information, spy on others. This is a violation of Australian sovereignty that we would believe this is what we mean when we say that, that every government um, should be protecting the Uyghur residents, citizens, permanent residents, and students who are there. Um, so clearly the government of China um, has felt that it can do this with impunity, not received any kind of diplomatic uh, pushback from at the highest levels. Then in terms of public messaging, which you um, pointed out, Yun, um, it's been incredible to see uh, more and more outlandish uh, reporting as the media and government attention has grown um, to see the line that the, that the Chinese state-owned media, like this Global Times, have taken. Um, and it's still an unfolding question. I don't think analysts have really figured out um, the extent to which there's a, a genuine belief at the central propaganda level. If we take this propaganda line as the Chinese government, this will um, persuade others that China is taking the right course. But I'll just leave with two, mention two particularly shocking comments. One is uh, in one article in the English language Chinese state media saying, Europe should stop criticizing China for this policy of uh, locking up our Muslim Uyghurs en masse. You in Europe have a problem with domestic terrorism or terrorist attacks you know, in Paris and so on, you should learn from us. And then uh, in particular, um, yesterday, supposedly a news item that um, officials in Hong Kong, which is an autonomous, special autonomous special region of China, uh, sending a delegation to Xinjiang to learn uh, from the officials of Xinjiang about security. Really, I see eyebrows rise, uh, raising, being raised and that's exactly the right reaction. Thanks, Louise. I saw that report too. It was in the South China Morning Post and talked about the um, Hong Kong terrorism police um, staging a, a study tour or fact-finding mission to, to Xinjiang, which um, really quite um, shocking. Um, and that leads actually um, into um, the next question I'd like to ask of you, um, James. You, you talked already a little bit about some of the background to this um, shift, sharp shift in policy towards the so-called strike hard campaign associated with a new party boss being brought in uh, into Xinjiang in 2016 from, um, from Tibet. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the, the influence of, of provincial versus central uh, government dynamics? Is this something that has worked its way up through the system um, or, or is there a uh, is there also a, a you know a, a kind of hidden command chain that that points more more centrally here? I'd be interested in your your take on that. Uh, and connecting with Louise's point about um, Hong Kong now uh, apparently taking an, an interest, uh, are the policies repressive policies being followed in Xinjiang uh, 
a template or a testing ground for other provinces and parts of China to follow? Well, I'm firmly of the opinion this comes right from the top. Xi Jinping. I think there's no doubt that uh, he's well aware of what's happening in Xinjiang and uh, most likely authorized it. Uh, and if you look at, uh, and I've actually been working on this, um, the chronology of the policy shift, uh, we see that he was deeply unhappy with uh, the former party secretary, Jiang Chunshen, uh, who I spoke about before. Believed that he was a bit uh, too soft. So when Jiang came to power, he said, I was going to use a two-handed approach, a bit of soft, a bit, bit of hard, carrot and stick. Um, and she was deeply embarrassed when he visited, toured the region in two, early 2014. Uh, on his final day, there was a terror attack at the Urumqi train station. Um, and he was furious. He, and uh, at a, uh, a, a meeting of the Politburo Standing Committee, he declared that the soft approach had failed. And what was required was putting stability at the very forefront uh, over time. And these things do take time uh, because of the dynamic of center versus uh, periphery or, or, or center versus local dynamics. It took time, a couple of years, for him to push Jiang Chunshen aside and uh, bring in uh, uh, Chen Chengguo. Now, the interesting thing about Chen Chengguo is that factionally, he's actually not Xi's man. In fact, there were some suggestions in the Chinese language reporting that he wanted somebody else, one of his own, to go in there. Uh, and you know, these, there's a lot of negotiating that goes on in Chinese politics. Um, and so Chen was likely uh, a second choice. Um, but he had proved himself when he was in um, Tibet as a, uh, a law and order aficionado, uh, also a kind of ethnic policy innovator. And so you had this interesting kind of dynamic where you have an uh, a, 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 a individual in Chen who is very eager to please his new boss, also eager to get on the Politburo Standing Committee, because when he was originally, oh, sorry, the Politburo, so when he was originally appointed, he was only on the Central Committee. Um, and essentially, uh, she says to him, okay, the hard and soft approach didn't work. Uh, you set about fixing this problem. And uh, Chen Chongguo comes in and says, what I'm going to do is adopt a united fist approach. And we begin to see, soon after his arrival, uh, a very number of uh, very radical policy changes. You have the construction uh, of, uh, of uh, what the Chinese euphemistically call neighborhood convenient policing stations on every uh, street corner. You have the, uh, uh, the sending of party officials down uh, to live uh, and uh, uh, you know, literally share the bed with uh, Uyghur families. Uh, and then you have the uh, construction of these uh, internment camps and the beginning to round individuals up. And um, for his efforts, Chen is rewarded. He gets a seat on the Politburo. Um, and uh, you know, I think his policies are seen as largely effective uh, in, uh, in Beijing. Uh, and to, to, to your last point, Ewan, I mean, clearly uh, there are other individuals who are now looking to uh, what is happening in Xinjiang as a model. Um, first, you have a kind of Xinjiang as a, a, a laboratory of, uh, of surveillance. So a lot of um, surveillance efforts uh, that were originally trialed in, uh, in Xinjiang are now being uh, uh, implemented throughout the, the country. And then the, this uh, call for uh, other provinces, other regions to study uh, uh, Xinjiang's approach to terrorism. So you had uh, the party official in Ningxia, which is a neighboring autonomous region, uh, predominantly uh, uh, where the, uh, the Hui, uh, another 
Muslim Minority Live uh, signed a uh, cooperative agreement to work on counterterrorism with Xinjiang. And then I didn't, uh, was not aware of this new report about uh, officials from Hong Kong. But it shows you certainly that uh, despite uh, the international criticism, it appears that China has no intention of uh, backing down on its policies, but rather uh, uh, sees them now as a, a model for other parts of China. And, and also internationally, it should be noted, um, with China and Chinese uses of, of uh, surveillance and, and stability maintenance measures being copied by uh, other countries. Thank you. Um, Nuri, uh, some of the other panelists have already said that um, China's uh, state media has attempted to, to draw equivalences between um, counterterrorism policies of, of Europe and the United States, uh, and that there is um, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, to, to use a, um, a, a metaphor, um, as, a, as a way of trying to blunt that criticism. But let me put that argument to you directly. D does China <coughs> face a real threat of religious extremism and terrorism? And how, how should it respond uh, if there is a genuine component uh, of, that, uh, of that domestic security threat? has an obligation to protect their own citizens uh, and it's not disputable. But what is happening uh, to the Uyghurs is, uh, as Jim pointed out, self-fulfilling prophecy. For the Chinese state to uh, formulate, um, introduce, implement security policy uh, has not been based on the presence of threat, rather their lack of so when you look at the, uh, the violent incidents being reported and cited by both China and the Western media, it uh, took place during the period of 20, 2012 and 2015. Those are the, uh, some of the uh, mostly reported ones as the Kunming uh, train station at Tiananmen Square and, and the, the one that Jim was mentioning earlier, the Urumqi train station. But if you really do want to achieve uh, your social stability, national security, or engage in counterterrorism efforts, you don't lock up 10% uh, of your population. Yeah, you don't lock up professors. You don't lock up soccer players, farmers, and peasants, uh, school teachers. Uh, you don't engage in uh, child separation, uh, sending Uyghur kids to um, state-run uh, orphanage. We've seen this in the history books uh, and we know how it ends. When any government uh, focuses on uh, particularly ethnic groups, uh, female and ch uh, children portion of the population, uh, it's reasonably expected that they have something in mind when they uh, focusing on this. So um, uh, Chinese government uh, has been saying that this is all about security, counter-terrorism or counter-extremism. But uh, they have not mentioned two uh, specific unstated goals. One um, relates to China's global uh, ambition, uh, namely Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, Uyghur's homeland East Turkestan makes one-sixth of the total uh, land mass in China. It, had, it borders with seven countries, 
those seven countries are directly linked to uh, the BRI, uh, Board, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, to put it in perspective, put in context, uh, East Turkestan is the, is the size of Western Europe, four times the size of California. So uh, in order to, to be successful in the road part of the initiative, China has to squelch political resentment or future political uh, upheaval in the region. Uh, of course, they don't say this, but if you look at the map, it's right here, actually, uh, you will see uh, uh, in international politics, the maps can explain a lot of uh, unanswered questions. And then two, um, this has a lot to do with the domestic consumption. Uh, Xi Jinping is, is the, the only uh, one in China. It used to be a party controlling the system, but now it's a one-man show. He is a president for life. He wants to show to his people that he's doing something to uh, make uh, as, uh, economic growth, a societally, politically a stable environment. Uh, to some of the Chinese government officials, um, any type of political upheaval uh, in the Uyghur's homeland may have a dominant effect on the other regions, or China-related China regions. And then the third um, has a lot of uh, Chinese policies, the current policies, a lot of uh, racist uh, character. So when the government likens your ethno-national identity, cultural appreciation, uh, your religion, and things like cancer, mental illness, uh, that they need to be eradicated with uh, chemicals. It explains that they have something uh, with your uh, uh, race, to be exact. Um, and if they took your children away from you while locking you up and giving them away for either adoption or put them in a state-run um, orphanage, trying to engage in uh, human engineering, that shows a lot of racist kind. And if, they, if any government, any uh, group, force any woman to marry anyone, that is also a very considerable matter. Today, Uyghur uh, women being forced to marry uh, Chinese individuals, uh, sometimes harassment, sometimes uh, threats, sometimes incentives. So the Chinese government is baiting this um, campaign against the Uyghurs, uh, effectively creating enemies, state enemies for the government in the multiple fronts, domestically, internationally, uh, psychological warfare, public opinion warfare, uh, labeling. So that's why we've been um, very concerned uh, that the world is not paying uh, close or enough attention to the matter. In your response, you, um, you connected um, up to the canvas of China's foreign policy. Before I turn over to the floor for questions, uh, I'd just like to invite my other two panelists to explore two other elements of how the situation in Xinjiang is affecting China's foreign policy. Firstly, for you, um, Jim, does it make China a bigger target for terrorism in Central Asia and the Middle East? An extrapolation of the self-fulfilling prophecy abroad. And secondly, um, for you, Louisa, um, Xinjiang has emerged as an important wedge in, in Sino-US relations, as you've already stated. 
Um, how much genuine interest and concern is there among uh, ordinary Americans? Um, could you flesh that out for us? Jim first, and then Louisa. So, Ewan, you've asked me a question I think you're better qualified to answer than myself. I'm someone that focuses on Chinese domestic politics, but I, of course, always have an opinion, so I'll give you my opinion. Um, I mean, clearly China, if we look at um, Al-Qaeda, and I assume it still exists because it does put out um, propaganda, they're certainly named for the first time China as a target and mentioned uh, the ongoing uh, oppression of the Uyghurs as uh, one of those issues. Uh, but also worth noting is the fact the absence of uh, critical voices from the, the Muslim world in, uh, at least here I'm talking about um, government circles. So we go back and Louisa was talking, I think you mentioned the um, periodic review of China at the UN uh, that occurred uh, in uh, November where Western countries came out uh, and criticized China over its policies in Xinjiang, including Australia, the United States, Canada, UK, Germany, and others. Uh, but missing from those voices of criticism were those coming from the Muslim world, where actually what they were saying, and if you can go back and listen, uh, was uh, that China's doing a great job on human rights. It's a model, exemplar model, for other countries. And why is that? Well, it's all about money. Follow the money trail. Right? And Neri mentioned BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, China's heavily invested in, uh, in parts of the Muslim world. Uh, Pakistan is one of the uh, key sources of Chinese uh, overseas investment. Um, and that, uh, that investment buys, um, buys uh, silence uh, on these issues. Um, and, and we must also remember that most of these uh, countries in the Muslim world are also autocratic governments. So uh, they're used to treating harshly their own people. So I think those two things uh, help explain the uh, silence from the Muslim world. But that issue of uh, terrorism, terrorism target, seriously, I'd happy to pass that on to you. <laughs> Thank you again so much for this question. Uh, I did mention that international <laughs> journalists who've reported against great odds, <laughs> having to dodge police trailing them when they try to uh, go to the the Uyghur region to report. Um, many of them say they don't understand why this isn't on the front page of every newspaper every day. Uh, so the, the awareness is not there yet. It takes a long time, partly because it's so hard to believe that in 2018 um, you could have uh, roundups of mass numbers of people based purely on their ethnic and religious background. Um, not a, a wartime tragedy, but a deliberate policy of the state from the top. Um, now, governments. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, we have been speaking with uh, a number of people in the U.S. Congress and, and <coughs> multiple departments in the U.S. government who are, um, you know, feel the same way, uh, very seized with it. And we met with um, two off political officers in the U.S. Embassy here in Canberra who tracked us down to talk more with us as we're talking about the Uyghur issue. So you have U.S. diplomats abroad in other places in Asia eager to help tee up a broad, coordinated international response, not the U.S. alone, not Australia trying to go out in front of everyone else and speak up where others aren't. Um, and we know that there are a number, where there's been a cross-party concern in the, uh, in the Australian Parliament. Um, just 10 days ago, a uh, statement by Richard Di Natale and uh, counterparts from the other two parties, um, this is coming. And so I'll particularly point out a policy response which will be on the table soon 
uh, Michael Danby here from Port Melbourne has introduced something called the Global Magnitsky Act. There is already one in the U.S. Uh, in force, and there will uh, there is also uh, one in Canada. Several other countries now. The EU is <coughs> considering it on Monday. Watch the news. Global Magnitsky Act, named for Sergei Magnitsky, who died in a Russian jail uh, because of the kleptocratic, that is, corrupt and human rights abusing nature of the Russian government. Uh, it's now applied globally so that abusers in any country uh, will be have a sanction, sanctions applied. No travel, freezing of assets, no property purchases, no sending money for their children to go and get an education in our free societies when they're abusing human rights at home. This is also coming not only to the EU, EU uh, but we now hear in Australia, but also in one other country. It's just, I'm forgetting which one, um, we just heard the news. So that will be a policy instrument that we strongly support and we actually invite all of those uh, people in Australia who are concerned to um, really urge um, this to become a bipartisan issue as it is in the US and certainly uh, throughout the European Parliament. Thanks very much. Just connecting very briefly to the policy agenda here in Australia, one area that I, I wonder as an open question will be affected for China for a long time has petitioned the Australian government to conclude a mutual extradition treaty in, in the back of um, the situation in Xinjiang. I think it's very hard to see how uh, any um, politician in Canberra could uh, could say yes to that. So I just leave that as an open thought. Thanking um, both Louisa and Nuri um, this week. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful for you um, both making time to fit in um, uh, the AIIA and the Trobasia on your as your um, choice uh, of venue in, in, in Melbourne. Uh, and I'm glad that we come at the, at, the, at the end of that to distill all of those um, um, points that you've made, and including some that you've picked up along the way, which is useful to get your perspective, being American-based, on, on how the debate is evolving um, here in, in Australia. I'm also very glad on a personal note that this is um, my first event uh, as Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Um, it won't be the last, and I hope it's not the last either, in, in association with our, with our um, very helpful um, co-hosts, the, the AAA. I'd also like to thank Jim Liebel um, for, for his initiative in setting up this event. Um, wouldn't have happened without you, so I, I'm grateful to you. Uh, and last but not least, to you for your, um, for your giving up your time, your attention, uh, and your, your insights um, and, and sharp questions. So um, thank you all, and uh, I'll hand it back to um, Alistair.